Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I'm Samantha Bryant, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Anne C. Bailey about her new book, The Weeping Time, Memory and the Largest Slave Auction in American History. Anne Bailey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Anne, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. I was originally born in Jamaica, but I also am an American citizen and have been for many years. And in some ways, that really informs a lot of my work because I consider myself somebody with, you know, three very um, strong identities that work together, an African identity, an original ancestral African identity, a Caribbean identity, and an American identity. Um, So perhaps it's not surprising that I end up specializing in African diaspora studies, and um, my work speaks from often from those three angles. Presently, and for the last 11 years, I've been um, associate professor of history and Africana studies at Binghamton University, uh, one of the flagship research institutions of the State University of New York, and um, it's a job I enjoy. Love working with students. Very much so. Long tradition in my family of teaching, so teaching and learning. So it's it's really been my pleasure to be here. Great, thank you. Now, how did you come to write the weeping? I think you you know graduate school. <laughs> graduate school can be can be so many so many things to most of us who have been through the process. Um, it can be a really tough experience in many ways. For me, it was it was really eye-opening, and I, I don't think you ever have a time like that that you have an opportunity to just read and read so widely without a lot of other obligations. At least that was the case for me. And I was at University of Pennsylvania, and even though it was grueling in terms of the demands and the workload, it really was eye-opening to read so deeply in slavery studies. Uh, there were just, you know, as much as I thought I knew, I did not know. And there was so much more to know. And what struck me the most um, was really the social history aspect of slavery. Um, Specifically, what struck me was um, a book by Herbert Gutman called uh, The Black Family in Slavery and in Freedom. And that book was just, I mean, first of all, it showed, you know, this, the history of the black family and particularly what they went through during slavery. But it was the first place I'd ever read that families, what seemed almost obvious really now when I think about it in retrospect, that families did everything they could to stay together. They did everything they could in some cases, to buy one another from slave masters, particularly the men trying to buy their their wives or their children or what have you. 
Um, and I was just struck by all these types of stories of what people went through uh, to keep their families together when it was clear that um, slavery was not an, in an institution that really fostered you know, strong family ties. It did very much, did a lot to destroy family ties, in fact. So, um, but there was one piece that really struck me, and it was this question of the auctions and these auctions that, you know, clearly were routine. And, and government didn't focus on them, but, I mean, in the narrative, you see so much about these auctions. And there was one piece where he said that what these slaves would do is that went on the auction block and they realized that they could not stop their fate, that they were going to be separated from their mothers or their brothers or sisters or husbands and wives, whatever the case may be, children, they would cut a piece of their hair or they would cut a swath of clothing of the loved one and they would keep that for themselves as a memento um, of the last time that they saw them, but not just of the last time that they saw them, but of the time they would hope to see them again. So it was a way of saying, I will find you. I will, till the end of my days, look for you. And this little memento, as simple as it is, is going to remind me to do that. And it may even be helpful in helping me to find you. So, you know, even now when I think about just just talk about it. It just strikes me so strongly on an emotional level because to think that, you know, they had that foresight, they had that hope, even in the midst of a really devastating um, decision that was made for them. Um, and that really stuck with me. I, I just, I wondered why there wasn't more about that because clearly this was something that was done. And even if it wasn't specifically done with taking a memento, you still had you must have had that memory that they were trying to forge on that last meeting and that hope to meet again. So that got me going. There's more to it than that, but that, that was really the beginning of planting in my mind a seed, so to speak, as to the strength of black families, their determination for them to stay together, and ultimately their recovery of family after the Civil War mm -hmm. in particular um, and after slavery ended. Could you tell us a bit about the Butler Plantation auction in March 1859? So I, you know, again, I had this interest in, in auctions, but not sure, you know, and, and, and surprised, in fact, that there wasn't an awful lot written about auctions. There's some good work, of course, by Walter Johnson, and there's also, you know, some old work by, by a scholar named Bancroft. I mean, I think there was, you know... There's, there's definitely work out there, and the narratives, slave narratives themselves tell the story of, you know, ex-slaves tell the stories of when they were auctioned, or their wives were auctioned, or husbands, or what have you, or family members, but there really wasn't a lot just on one auction. So I zeroed in on this auction, which was the largest slave auction in American history. It took place in 1859. It took place mm -hmm. in Savannah, Georgia. And the slaves themselves, the enslaved were not from Savannah. They were brought to Savannah from a place called Butler Island. Now, some of us may know more popularly St. Simon's Island or Hilton Head or places like that. 
um, Sapelo Island, you may have heard of as well. There are all these islands off uh, Georgia, South Carolina, and to some extent Florida, particularly Georgia and South Carolina, which a number of which were, you know, communities of enslaved persons. Mm -hmm. um, they were, you know, during the time of slavery, owned by one or two or a number of slave owners. And um, what's interesting about it in this case, Butler Island, obviously owned by the Butlers, was a place that even though they were enslaved, they were one community. <laughs> so that's what's, what I thought was a really fascinating example because typically in the enslaved life, in the life of someone who was enslaved, you could be sold maybe six times in a lifetime. That was a kind of an average. But in the case of the Butler slaves, they were not sold very commonly. They were really a community of about actual 900. And in general, they were not sold up and down the river, as they would say. And in fact, they had a bit of a pride about that. In fact, they said, you know, we're not sold up and down like lots of other, other folks in the South. But yet, on um, this fateful day, these two fateful days, March 2nd and March 3rd, 1859, um, fully half of that community, 430-something of them, were put up for auction. And um, that meant automatically that families would be split up that meant automatically that not only would they be split up um, on the auction block, but also from the community, the other half of the community that was left behind on the plantation that were not going to be sold. So those two days were fairly momentous in the lives of the Butler slaves, and as it turns out, also in the people who owned them at the time, the Butlers. In Chapter 2, you begin with the question, why study the weeping time? What can the auction blog tell us about the legacy of slavery? Well, I think what I try to do is to look at this, you know, when I look at the different relationships that were split up, there was, you know, most notably a couple that had been engaged to be married, Jeffrey and Dorcas, and another couple who were themselves, you know, engaged and quickly got married during the auction, found a minister and got married so that they would be together. And I think those two couples really represent so much to me in many ways because the one couple that's broken up, Jeffrey and Dorcas, what the auction speaks to is not just the breaking up of a tie, a loved, the ties between two loved ones at that moment, but generational ties, you know, who it speaks to what might have been, <laughs> you know, as much as it speaks to what happened. Um, so the auction represents, in my view, this breach in, in not only families or would-be families, but what would be coming out of those families, right? The potential that every one of those units meant and could mean. And so it's, it's a really, it's something to really, when you put your, you kind of wrap your mind around it, it it's really quite mind-boggling when you think of, it's not just the break between two people. Um, it really represents so much more, and it really cuts off 
a number of amazing possibilities that could have come out of that union, for example. And the contrast that I have, of course, is with this, the other couple that made this, you know, amazing, had the amazing fortitude, figured out how to get a, you know, there was a minister in the crowd and they got married. And so they were sold together because of it. And um, we can presume that they had, you know, a chance to have offspring and, again, to build a life um, even though they were enslaved. So on one level, I just want people to understand what it meant, really to stop and think about what an auction means. It's not, when you're not dealing with objects and you're dealing with people, what does that mean for those families, for those would-be families, and for future generations? So that's one level. On the other level, I wanted the auction to be a window and into other aspects of American history, whether it be not just a period of slavery, civil war, reconstruction, um, you know, emancipation, and so forth. I really wanted it to, to, to be a somewhat of a symbolic, if you will, of some of these major periods. And so what I end up doing is I track 15% of the 400 and 400 plus folks who were sold that during that auction period of those two days, and I track them up to the present day. That's about 59 individuals that I track in the historical record up to the present day. So in the tracking of them, I see that a number of them, for example, fought in the Civil War. They enlisted with the Union Army and, um, you know, fought for their freedom. <laughs> As we know, you know, thousands of people of African descent fought for their freedom in the Civil War on the side of the Union Army. Thousands more just left plantations and abandoned them and, and found their freedom that way. They didn't wait for Lincoln to, you know, to proclaim them free in 1863. So I take you through, through the eyes of those who were enslaved and auctioned, I take you through the major periods um, of American history through their eyes. When the war is over and we get to Reconstruction, for example, a lot of the books, the great books, so many great books like John Hope Franklin books and so many other great books about Reconstruction, largely though focus on the political piece of it and what that meant politically for North and South and, and even, you know, electoral politics and the fact that a number of Blacks have an opportunity to hold office for the first time and citizenship and all of that. And all of that's so important, and I talk about that too. But I really zero in on the fact that Reconstruction, from the point of view of those who were auctioned, is about families first. First and foremost, it's that family member that you lost on the auction block in 1859 that you're going to go looking for. Before you worry about your citizenship... <laughs> or lack thereof, before you worry about what rights you have to work on the farm that you're now still on or you're leaving or what have you, you're looking for your family members. And to go back to that original image that I gave you that inspired me, I just imagine a number of them having these little mementos, or even if they didn't have the mementos, they had memories, important memories of those last moments. And that's what they were seeking to connect with. So... What does the auction mean to U.S. history? I think it, 
it's a way of, of, of adding to or reinterpreting some of the major periods of American history in the post-slavery period. Could you tell us a little bit about the relationship between the Butlers themselves? So the Butlers were, you have Pierce Butler, Pierce Meese Butler, and Fanny Campbell, who was his wife. And she was, you know, almost kind of, she had a, she was a bit famous, really, uh, in the theater. She was an actress, and that's how they met. She was an English woman. And so she was not American-born, but they met in America at her American debut. So she's someone, the Kemble name was very well known in England for being a name very much associated with the theater and famous actors and actresses. So she made quite an impression. Um, and they got married. He, at the time, he was living in Philadelphia, because what you've got to remember with a number of these um, southern planters, a number of them, especially in the deep south like this was, you know, they had homes in the north and they were essentially absentee landlords. So they would run, in this case, run his plantation through um, overseers and he would go maybe two or three times a year. So she didn't meet him as a, <laughs> you know, she didn't meet him as a southern planter. Um, he, she met his other half, if you will, as kind of a northern resident in Philadelphia, living in a big home and quite, you know, quite dapper. So they they got married, and I think what I try to explain in the book, because I think it's it's kind of hard to understand in a way how they got together, because she was somebody with abolitionist sympathies. And she was also somebody who was, as an artist, was probably, you know, quite liberal in her thinking. She was from a theatrical family. You know, it really didn't seem to connect very well, on, on paper anyway, if you think about it, with someone who was probably very staunchly conservative and um, with his southern roots and those roots being very much connected to slavery and his whole inheritance connected to slavery didn't seem like the best match. But they... They were a match. They married. And um, from the very beginning, this became a contention, a point of contention, that she was an abolitionist and he was staunchly, of course, he was staunchly in favor of slavery. It was the means by which he maintained his rich status. It was also the means by which he took care of her. So it was a really, really difficult and interesting relationship that they had. And they tried, I think, on both parts to see where they could meet in the middle. But in the end, Fanny Kemble, especially after her visit to his southern plantation on Butler Island, was unable to reconcile the fact that her own riches, if you will, her own good leisurely life was dependent on the backs of slaves. She could not reconcile with that, and that became a source of conflict and eventually the reason why they divorced in the end. How did enslaved people on the Butler plantation keep links to their African past? Well, one of the things that has always fascinated me about this period of slavery is that, and in spite of the fact that the book is called The Weeping Time, and it's called The Weeping Time, as I say in the book, because that's what the slaves called the auction. They called it The Weeping Time because of the splitting up of their families and the splitting up from their loved ones. 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, no long period of, of life, which is what slavery represented is over 250 years, could be a time of complete weeping. There could no, there's no way that they could have survived if there were not moments of joy, if there were not moments of, um, of intense determination to survive. And I think what I, I talk about in that chapter is how music plays that role. Music is, is really both inspiration. It's a salve. It's, you know, you know, it is, I think there's, there's, it's no surprise to me that the music of African-American music is so dominant around the world and that, that it has such strong historical roots because it literally, um, it was a linchpin and a way and a means by which, um, slaves survived. It was in the form of work songs. It was in the form of teaching their children, um, you know, various ways to live and to be. It was in the form of inspiring them to resist the master. I mean, there were just so many purposes to it. So I talk about that um, in that chapter. So it becomes not only something that functionally helps them survive, but it also becomes a legacy at the same time, a contribution to the building up of the Western world. I mean, I think that goes without saying that everybody knows that um, the unique contribution of blues, jazz, now rap and other and other forms um, in the West Indies, reggae, um, ska—it just goes on and on—that are universally accepted as important um, contributions to the Western world. So it's interesting, isn't it, that something that—that's not what they set out to do. <laughs> you know, that wasn't the plan. Um, it was more for survival, and it was also more as a way to connect with their African past, because no question about it in West and Central Africa, where many of these groups would have come from, they had strong musical traditions. So it both extends backwards and it extends forward um, in terms of the legacy contributes to modern day life, but it definitely also extends backwards to their African past. Could you tell us a little bit about the role religion played on the Butler plantation? I found this part very fascinating because, and I, I think I'm kind of building on work by Eugene Genovese and lots of wonderful scholars, so there's nothing, I don't think it's so much that there's a such a new crinkle here, but I, again, I'm trying to look at it from the point of view from this plantation and 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 also some of the slaves who would have been sold and and, and eventually um, found one another. So when I look at this question of religion, I see and you just look at the auction catalog, for example, and you you will be hard pressed. You will see every kind of you know plantation worker or every kind of um, job description, but you don't see anybody mentioned as the slave preacher. Interesting, right? That, you know, you see everything, blacksmith, cooper, this, that, the other, field hand of all sorts, rice hand, um, as they were called, cotton hand, and so forth. Drivers, which I thought was fascinating because the driver, of course, is kind of the the head man of the slaves, right? The, the first person underneath the overseer and someone of great responsibility and someone who in some cases may even have thought of himself as more important than the other slaves, I don't know, um, because he was certainly given a lot of responsibility, even responsibility at times to to what to whip other slaves. 
yet we've got several drivers on that list being sold away. <laughs> um, and to my knowledge, still preachers. So there is, there's a kind of um, interesting dynamic there where, and that's what I show in this chapter, is that eventually, in this particular case, Pierce Butler, Pierce Meese Butler, comes to respect the religion of his slaves, which was at that time mostly Christian. Um, I don't think he initially had much respect for it, uh, but maybe enough respect that they did not sell any of the preachers. But I don't think he really understood it. Fanny Campbell, his wife, was a Christian herself, and I think she definitely uh, could relate to them in that respect. She, They would ask for Bibles. She would try to get them Bibles. She would hold little prayer meetings in, in the great house. I mean, she actually did quite a bit in terms of religion with them, in terms of religious devotion with um, the enslaved on Butler Island. And so she could relate and connect with them on that level. So I try to show a little bit of that picture. Um, I also try to point out the irony of just in general, and this is not just for Butler Island, but in, in general across the South and all across America at this time, that there is you know very strong religious fervor, at least in terms of churches and you know at least in an outward sense, right? Um, and how that seemed quite irreconcilable. Um, for the slaves anyway, they, they could not reconcile the gospel of the Bible with the Christian practice that they were seeing in these churches and they were seeing from southern slave owners. So I, I bring that piece together again. Others have done the same, but I just showed that that was also quite similar. Um, in For this particular case study, you do see that dynamic of the two... Um, very uh, different interpretations of Christianity. On one hand, the slaves seeing Christianity as a kind of liberation theology, and on the other hand, um, you know, Southern and other landowners and slave owners seeing religion as a tool for oppression and seeing it as a tool to uh, further enslave them and keep them in their place. Same Bible being interpreted, interpreted in very different ways. What impact did the Civil War have on the Butler family? Well, as I mentioned before, um, you know, the the most significant piece about the Civil War, I think, because, of course, the Civil War starts in 1861, so it's only two years after um, these people were auctioned. And that's one of the reasons why this became a very good case study for me to choose, because I thought if I'm interested in looking at how families not only break up, but then reconnect again, the chances are much better for a family in 1859 to find one another than, you know, after the war than, than it is for, say, a family in even 1800 or 1700s or so forth. That said, the Civil War was an opportunity for um, uh, those who were enslaved, auctioned or not, either left back on the plantation or those who were auctioned to actually participate in gaining their own freedom. This was an opportunity for them to directly um, reach out for their own freedom. They didn't have to wait for anyone to free them. They did not have to wait for soldiers um, to fight their battles. They could actually participate in that war. So 
I talk about that noble Walker most notably, and I found his, uh, you know, he was sold on the auction block in 1859 and I found his, um, his military records at the national archives. And I was able to share that in my book and others like him, you know, who, um, participated in the war. I also look at what took place during the war in St. Simon's Island, which of course, part of St. Simon's Island is a part of the Butler estate. And St. Simon's Island become this really fascinating experiment in black self-determination. It's actually the first place where the whole notion of 40 acres and a mule is initiated um, because during the war, Lincoln gives Sherman permission. This is towards the end of the war. He gives him permission to distribute land, 40 acres and a mule, to um, a number of the slaves, starting first with St. Simon's Island. This was to be their, we, we, they, I don't know if they would use the word at the time, reparations, but this was to be their way of now getting back on their feet. I suspect it was also a way to, if you will, <laughs> to really challenge the Southern landowners who, you know, as far as the Union Army was concerned, of course they were rebels, so I don't think the Union Army had any problem in redistributing this land. So it was a both it was both and, if you will. But certainly for the slaves, what this meant, that forty acres and a mule meant that they could they had a chance. You know, they had been enslaved for two hundred and fifty years. Now they would have a chance, they would have a leg up. Unfortunately, this was short lived after Lincoln's um, assassination. Um, the new administration promptly rescinded that order and that property had to go back to the southern landowners and there was no more distribution of any land, any mules, any anything, in fact, to slaves. They never received, and this is really, really important, and I, I stress this quite often in my work, that they never received one penny of reparations. They never received one penny for the work that they did for free for 250 years that they and their ancestors did. And not only that, but then they were somehow expected to, you know, join everyone on this uneven playing field and then rise up, you know, out of the ashes. They were supposed to rise up and meet everyone on an equal basis when the whole game had started in an unequal way. So... Um, that's that's really really important, and I think again, it's I wouldn't say that it's this is not new news, but what I look at is the fact that it's interesting that my very case study is the place where this early experiment in black self determination took place, and I should say that I show the evidence of Susie King Taylor from her work from her um, primary source that while they did have that land, right, they were very productive. They made thousands of dollars. They bartered away some of it, you know, but not the land, but some of the produce that they 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 made on it. Um, they were very productive. The early signs were very positive for those who had that chance to um, work the land and actually have their labor be used for their advancement and not just the advancement of others. But that experiment, as I said, was quickly shut down. In the final part of your book entitled Healing the Breach, uh, you discuss the process of reconnection among freed slaves. 
Could you tell us a little bit more about this theme of reconnection during the Reconstruction era? Well, again, um, as I mentioned before, Reconstruction for many slaves is really about families first. First and foremost, that was the critical piece of this. That was um, that was what was dominating their minds, uh, was trying to connect with family. You know, freedom wasn't, it's as if to say, I think I can go as far as saying that many didn't really feel they were free until they connected with family, because that's when you knew that you were free. You know, one, you were mobile, and two, you, you know, it's like, as like the saying goes, a house is just bricks, but it's a home when there's family there. So I think a lot of them really, you know, were focusing on family. Um, interestingly enough, you have a section and a good amount of the people who were sold in 1859 who go back to Butler Island. They go back there. And I know some people, I know students would probably ask me, well, why would they go back there? That was the scene of the crime, so to speak. But again, if you think about it from the perspective of those who were auctioned, you want to go back to see loved ones left behind. You also, every person who has a loved one also has, um, you know, has buried, you know, a loved one, right, at some point in their life. So you're going to have loved ones in graves in those very areas that they left on Butler Island. And that's also another piece of this as well, that we don't really realize how important it would be for people to go back and pay their respects. So even if they didn't leave someone alive, but they left parents who had passed away and were buried at Butler Island, they would want to go back. So this is something that, and there was an actual burial ground for um, the enslaved um, on Butler Island. So this was really something important for those who were auctioned, was reconnecting with families. Do you find this theme of reconnection among modern-day descendants? Absolutely. That's Perhaps, and certainly I, I just want to give tribute, I should say, there's so many people to thank for this work. So many scholars have helped me and institutions have helped me get this work done, the Fulbright. I can't, I don't even know where do I start, my own university, Binghamton, and obviously Cambridge University Press and my wonderful editor, Debbie Gershenowitz, and so many others. So many people have helped me make this happen. But I have to say that what stands out for me the most are the descendants of the auction block in 1859. These are people who, like, I feel as if I joined them in the search for family members. You know, some of them had been doing this on their own for years. And um, through this process of my work, we began to help each other in piecing together what we could piece together. Now, I will say that you know, there are people like Annette Holmes, there are people like Griffin Lotson, there are people like Tiffany Shea Young. Um, there are others who um, are really tremendous individuals. They are, on one level, they're just regular Americans, working people, work hard. Um, they do interesting things. Griffin Lotson is a public official. Annette Holmes is works in the university system. She's got quite an important position in the university system in California. Tiffany Shea Young has um, dedicated her life to, you know, leading tours on Butler Island, and she's, you know, a wonderful um, 
you know, both tour operator and a, a cultural worker. But I think what's interesting about a lot of these descendants is that they know their history and it shows. They are, they are walking around in what I call a very conscious state, a very enlightened state of being, because they're not simply just enjoying the, the fruits of modern America. They understand where those fruits have come from. <laughs> they understand their own direct connection to um, American history. And it shows, and it shows that knowing your history makes a difference, if you know what I mean. It shows that it's more important than just how much money you have in the bank or what house you live in, that there's a kind of confidence, there's a kind of ownership that they have of American history that I don't think everybody has unless you know more of your history and the details as they do. Fascinating. They were wonderful to work with, and I continue to work with them and to connect with them. And um, it's been the honor of my life to have done a project like this with them. Oh, thank you so much. Before you leave us, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Well, I continue to work on these types of issues, first of all. Some of my work, does not, not all my work has to do with, with slavery, but I not only work on slavery, as you know, in this book, this book is not only about the history of slavery and its aftermath, it's, it's also about memory, right? It's really memory studies as well, and I'm trying to make a contribution to the field of memory studies. And I just want to read a, a short quote from, I'm teaching right now a civil rights course, civil rights, uh, a course on the civil rights movement, and we're reading the autobiography mm-hmm. of Martin Luther King Jr., edited by Claiborne Carson, who's another great scholar. And he quotes King in one of the chapters where they're talking about when the, not when the beginning of the movement, but as the movement is beginning to take off and they really are getting some traction. And so King, you know, he wrote a lot during the movement. God knows when he found time to write, (laughs) but he did, you know, like the book strike towards freedom and other books. And so one quote here, he goes, history has thrust upon our generation an indescribably important destiny to complete a process of democratization which our nation has too long developed too slowly, but which is our most powerful weapon for world respect and emulation. How we deal with this crucial situation will determine our moral health as individuals, our cultural health as a region, our political health as a nation, and our prestige as a leader of the free world. Martin Luther King Jr. in talking about um, the expanded civil rights movement. And the word I want to zero in on there is when he says that history has thrust upon the generation to complete a process of democratization. That's, you know, in much more humble ways, I'm trying to democratize memory. In much more humble ways, I'm trying to do exactly that in the case of memory. I think that what we have when we think about the memory of the past is these kind of odd fragments that are not really placed together in some sense of coherence. And so we end up with a sense of a kind of fragmented identity, and not just for people of African descent, but also for for others. And by others, I mean, obviously, people of European descent, but I also mean of immigrants. 
I also mean of, of others, of other, you know, whether Latino or Asian or what have you, because no matter who it is that comes and is a part of the American whole and American pie, they're affected by this early history of America. No matter whatever time they enter in to the American historical picture, this early history of slavery affects their own being and their own trajectory right now. There's no question in my mind about that, that everybody's affected by this history. And yet, when we look back, we still need to move much further away from just kind of these grand narratives of history that weave out, if you will, or sideline um, the enslaved, or that sees their story as only as it pertains to um, the more, their more powerful counterparts, meaning the slave owners. Um, so I'm really into telling the stories of ordinary people living in extraordinary times. And I think to do that, you have to democratize memory. You have to include as many voices as you can. And even if you don't have all the narratives that I would love, I would have loved to have had, you know, written autobiographies of every single person who was enslaved and that was sold on that auction block. What, what I would do for that. I don't have that because of the nature of slaveries that that would not have happened. But what I have to do, my job as a historian, is to piece together as much as I can, as much as I can and as faithfully as I can, to tell their story so that from the perspective of memory, when we look back, we don't see um, such a... Uh, What's the word? We don't see such a, a monolithic, if you will, um, picture. We see a much more diverse picture. We see something that is much more reflective of our rich history, which is diverse and does include all voices. So whatever I'm doing next, it will always have this memory component. There will be history and then there will be memory. There will always be that piece because of the need for all voices, and because it really does affect how we look at things today, as we've seen in recent in recent months, how you look back at things makes a very big difference on the things that you're going to do, and you're going to implement, and you're going to try to change or not change today. Yeah, I want to, uh, on that note, uh, thank you for being on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. I hope your audience finds some of this material of interest. And I should just say that the book is called The Weeping Time, but it does not end in weeping. It, it's really from weeping to a kind of triumph because it's a triumph of family bonds and the recovery of those bonds. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You're welcome.